Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Jason Creekmore and Shannon Deaton. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we are going to discuss the art of the novel. Sitting across from me is my partner and avid reader, Shannon Deaton. Shannon, how are you, man? I'm doing fantastic, Jason. Excited for this episode, sir. Did you eat a lot for Thanksgiving? I always do, man, and thanks for asking about that. That's really helping my self-esteem today. <laughs> I think I, I think I ate like 20 pounds of mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's, good. That's great. Also with us here today is New York Times best-selling author Will Lavender. So, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. How much did you eat for Thanksgiving, Will? Oh, it made it look like a crime scene when I <laughs> <laughs> The topic of a future novel. <laughs> the Thanksgiving murder. <laughs> Shannon, when we were planning this episode, you know, we said, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we only knew a best-selling author? Maybe something, you know, someone to contribute to this this topic. Sure. Uh, and then I was like, wait a minute, I actually know <laughs> a, a New York Times best-selling author. Jason Creekmore is well connected, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Will, once again, thanks for joining us. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe some of the experiences in terms of writing. Well, I grew up in McCray County. Um, I actually went to Cumberland College for a year when it was called Cumberland College, and then I, I graduated from Center College in, in Danville. I really got into writing, I think, after Center. I, I took a really interesting class at Center that was an experimental poetry class, and I had already wanted to be a writer. I'm one of these people, odd people, and I wouldn't recommend this for hardly anybody. But I kind of knew what I wanted to do really early on when I was probably 12, 13 years old, and I you know, sort of chased that all through college, and I was only interested in writing. If I had to do it again, I probably would be more broad in my in, in my schooling. But I took this poetry class at Center, and the, to give you an idea of what the class, the, the sort of gist of the class, the, the teacher had written a book called Lotion Bullwhip Giraffe, <laughs> and it was the craziest thing. And, and I it had a real profound effect on me, and for about three, four years, I just wanted to write kind of experimental poetry that was meaningless. It meant nothing to anybody. And looking back on it now, I didn't even know what it meant. And um, but So that kind of led me to Bard College in New York. So I got my Master's of Fine Arts from, from Bard College. It's in the Hudson Valley. It's kind of known as a place that's a experimental poetry uh, haven almost. A lot of the author, a lot of the writers there, poets, uh, with John Ashbery is there, uh, was there before he, he passed away recently. And he's kind of a, a grandfather of experimental writing. And so it was ironic, though, when I got to Bard, I moved away from experimental writing, and I moved back to the things that I, that I had read when I first got into reading and writing, which was Stephen King genre, you know, Dean Koontz genre writing, which is really how I fell in love with reading in the first place when I was 16, 15, 16 years old. And so it was really ironic that I got into the experimental writing, and then I sort of learned the mechanics of it and the techniques of it and the history of it, and I became almost... I don't know, disenchanted with it, and so I sort of reverted to what I was reading as a kid, and it kind of, that was a really odd thing. So by the time I graduated from Bard, I was, um, you know, I was kind of moving back to genre, you know, wanting to write more Stephen King-style stories. From there, I, I actually, I was a, a teacher, a writing teacher at a community college in Louisville and at Indiana University Southeast for six years, uh, and during that time, I wrote almost no fiction at all. Uh, I, I felt like I, you know, had moved on uh, somehow, strangely, and in 2000, and I think it was 2007, 
I had this idea that I was going to go into one of my classes and tell them that there had been a murder or disappearance. And, and I was actually going to do this. And we were going to read, uh, we were going to have forensics readings. We we're going to have, I was going to give them mystery short stories. I was going to do all this stuff. And we were going to te- treat the class as if it were kind of an investigation into a disappearance. And that we were going to take every week, we were going to talk about this missing girl. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I'm going to get sued for that. So there's, <laughs> there's no way that will ever work. People think I'm crazy. But and, and that, this all happened as I was driving home one day. I remember where I was when it kind of fell into my mind. But I thought, how crazy would that be for a setup of a novel, a thriller novel? And so that's that started my first uh, novel, Obedience, which is about a teacher who walks into a college classroom. It's a logic classroom. And he tells them that there's been a disappearance of this girl, um, a college-age girl. And if they don't find her, her name is Polly. If they don't find Polly within six weeks, which is how long the class runs, she will die. And as the students start to get into the class, they realize that this may not be a class. This may be something that this teacher did. And it kind of changed my life. It was, you know, it it began, oddly, I thought it might be a short story. And as I started writing it, I didn't even know who the main characters were. And then so it kind of grew, and it was the easiest thing I've ever had to write. I wrote it about six weeks. I mean, it just kind of came out. I think it was because I hadn't written anything in, in six years, as I said. And it was almost like it had been stored up inside of me, and all this information kind of came out. And the, the phrases were so easy, and the sentences were so easy. I took some of the scenes in obedience. I took the, the geography from Center, but I took some from Cumberland. Uh, and I took some from Bard, where I'd gone to, to get my master's. So I was using this kind of hodgepodge of life experience to build this, my, you know, the, the places where these characters were. And it was just re- very easy to write. I knew that I had something when I wrote it. It was one of those things where, you know, I, I just, th- I looked at it, I thought, this is different um, than a lot of thriller novels that I've seen. And I think I can really do something with this. Had no idea that it would ever be published, but I knew that it was possible uh, that that would that that would happen. Another thing about my experience for a long time in writing, I never thought. You know, I, I became really interested, as I said, in genre novels. Right as I was getting my master's, and I, I started to read a lot of stuff like detective novels and and horror novels and. With, with thrillers, the interesting thing about thrillers is that a lot of thrillers are police procedurals. They have some procedural element inside of them that's the, you know, the detective is following clues. There's a lot of cop uh, stuff going on. And, and I thought, you know, and I read a lot of those novels, and I thought, I'll never be able to do this because I know nothing about cops. I know nothing about forensics. So that kind of closes me out of that world. Then I read a couple of books, actually one, uh, a, a book called Oblivion by a guy named Peter Abrahams. And I read it in 2005, six. it came out. Uh, it, odd, odd thing about that book, I don't know if you read Entertainment Weekly, you know, the magazine, uh, they, their book review section, they give grade levels, like a, like you'd A, B, C, D. Oh, sure, like and, their rating yeah, system. Yeah, like a rating. Yeah. And o- Oblivion got an A+. It's the only novel I've ever seen in Entertainment Weekly that, get, that got an A+. So I thought, I have to read this. So I went out and got it. It changed, it really changed my life. And the reason it did is partly because it's a great book. It's very fun to read. It's really, but it's, it's a book that is has no dete- procedural elements in it, it. Well, it kind of is a procedural, but you don't have to know anything about cops. You don't have to know anything about the law. 
to um, to write a book like that. And it, it's it's a trick book. It has a trick in the middle of it. And I thought I can do this. This is possible for me to pull off. And about that time is when I started to write uh, Obedience, and I used a lot of the things. If you read Oblivion and Obedience back to back, you'll catch a lot of the tricks that I borrowed from him. You could even say stole from him. <laughs> um, he went on. Uh, Peter Abrahams went on to write books under the name Spencer Quinn, um, and he writes about their their sort of dog mysteries. And he became really popular. Stephen King actually really loves him, but he had this whole previous life of writing psychological thrillers. And I think he's amazing. But that book in particular really changed the way I thought about uh, about novels. You know, we, we have quite a few listeners who are uh, more amateur fiction writers. And one thing that I've often seen cited as a struggle is just the length of a novel. You know, just sitting down, getting a coherent story that flows across thousands of words. So in writing the books that you've written and, you know, even your previous work, what would you say is the most difficult challenge that you face personally in coming from an idea to a completed work? Well, short stories are harder to write the novels because short stories, you, you have such a um, compacted level of kind of intensity. And, you know, what you can do, your playground is so much smaller. So you can't go on these long riffs. You can't follow subplots as much. You have to have this really tight arc. Short stories are very hard to, to do well. The, but the trick with novels, the problem with a novel is, well, this has happened to me. I can't speak for all novelists, but I have, I do this in reading. I get into a book a lot of times and I'll get about halfway through and I'll read about another novel and I'm like, I've got to go read that. So I'll put down, <laughs> even if I love the novel I'm sure. reading, I'll put yeah. it down, I'll go find. And I do that in writing a lot. I'll be in the middle of a story and I'll, I'll be driving one day because I have a long commute to work and I'll think, you know, something will hit me like, oh, that's a really clever little concept. And I'll just start writing on that. I'll just drop this other thing that I'm doing. And so it's kind of a, I think the trick of a novel is to keep this consistent level of intensity and attention on your project. And that's why I mentioned obedience took me six, six weeks to write that you didn't have, there was no wondering there because it just all came out. It was like some kind of a spilling from the brain. And it just, with my second novel, Dominance was much harder. It, it, it took about a year and a half and the putting it, you know, the, the act of putting it together was really difficult because it, it had a lot more moving parts, a lot more characters, a lot more set pieces inside. And so my mind would wander and I, I, I went off on these other tangents, you know, on, and I started another project in the middle of it and did all this. So I think the trick for me has always been if I can keep my head focused on this, this story and, and carry it out to its end, that's, um, you know, that's kind of a major part of the battle. But another thing is it's, it's a problem in all writing. I actually found this when I taught students. Writing is a really interesting and complex thing because we think of these ideas and you have this concept in your head and you think this is I'm going to write this this is what's going to be on the page and then you sit down to write and it doesn't look anything like what you how you've conceived and that happens when you write papers for college classes or when you write an essay or, or fiction or whatever it is uh, I've never had anything that I conceived and that ended up on the page that looked the same. So writing, I think this is one of the reasons why writers tend to have depression, why they tend to be, you know, really struggle with their work yeah. because they're in this constant battle of this doesn't fit with this blueprint that I have in my head. It's, it's a, it's this, 
you know, continuous exercise and failure. And you can see that you know, on the page. Writers know that. And uh, it's really hard to kind of get over that hurdle and, and say, you know, I, this, this, is, this is good enough. I've always been. I was told by a teacher in graduate school when I was at Bard, I had a teacher tell me one time, uh, he said, your problem is going to be when you start, you said you have a lot of natural talent, but when you start writing, you have a bad habit of going back on your work and trying to check it and mm-hmm. doing all these checks. He said, what I would recommend is, and then this time people weren't writing with laptops as much because they were writing, you know, desktops were still big. He said, turn your monitor off on your computer and just write. Don't even look at it. And, and I've noticed that. And he, he nailed something about me. I was only 22 at the time, 23. And he really hit on something that has been a problem for me. I wouldn't call myself a perfectionist necessarily, but I, I think I have that natural writer's a tendency to just kind of check everything and not want to go forward but stay and you do that to to an extent and it becomes this sort of like yeah. cycle you can't get out of you tend to just kind of go back and repeat what you've written and, yeah. and keep reading through the yeah. same pages yeah, yeah. No, i also had a teacher when i was in high school we had to uh, write a uh, a fiction piece for the, for our portfolios so, uh, like a good student, I waited till about five minutes before that was due. <laughs> Surely uh, not. Yeah, I, I had about eight months to do it, and so I waited about five minutes. And so, you know, I wrote the classic uh, called Clocks, and it was my poem. And a teacher came up to me and said some some insightful words to there to me. And I think it, it went something like uh, Tick tock, tick tock, goes the clock on the wall. Uh, tick tock, tick tock. Time is coming for us all, oh, <laughs> and then and then that was it. So I turned that in, and uh, so uh, you know, she gave me some suggestions on how I can improve. And you know, there's so, some heavy thematic implications. That's what I told her. I've, I've said that for years, and no one just understands. I don't know what it is. So, Will, you've mentioned uh, uh, several authors and novels already, uh, but are there are there any others that have particularly influenced you? Uh, in, in your writing career, well, I, I mentioned *Oblivion* by Peter Abrahams was a huge was a huge thing for me. Um, another book that I read around that time, but right as I was starting *Obedience*, was a book by Michael Connelly, who's the cop writer, who's the great great Los Angeles cop writer. Uh, they turned just turned his Bosch novels into a, a, a TV show on on Amazon. He is a master. He, the way he deals with plot is is incredibly interesting. He has in his novels there will be about five things going on at one time and the characters are working through all these plot elements and I read a book called The Closers uh, right around the time I, I started Obedience and it and it, and it again it kind of goes back to what I was saying before that is a cop novel so that has a lot of forensics and a lot of legal things that so it's kind of outside of my area of expertise but there's something about that novel in particular that charged something in my brain. I think it's the way Connolly deals with plot. When I'm asked to come and speak, I'm not, uh, people don't do this too much anymore, but when Obedience and Dominance came out, I was often asked to come to book fairs and to come to conferences and, and talk. And they would often say, you've got to talk about plot, how you do plot, because that's kind of, you know, what I, one thing that I was really interested in with, with Obedience and Dominance. And I will admit, I'm very interested in plot, not as much interested in character for some reason. And that's why I don't think I'll ever be a breakout novelist or anything, because because the great novelists are those who care care about their characters to an extent of almost empathy. And you notice this in Stephen King. I mean, he cares about his villains. He cares about his heroes. The, he, he'll have these novels loaded up with all this backstory of characters, thinking of it in particular, where you have 300 pages of character before you really get into the plot of the novel. Yeah, um, and that's one of those love it or leave it sort of things yeah. uh, because it usually takes a couple hundred
later pages to get into the the big the bigger books such yeah. as it yeah. yeah and and even his smaller book you know he he does that even the short stories at times will have this you know this kind of front loaded character building and um it's you know it's something that i can never do i i can't get on the wavelength of thinking about imaginary people that way and so that's why people would not have you know generally not have this deep emotional connection with my books but i mentioned stephen king i mean he had you know tremendous uh, impact on me but one novel that i would would definitely mention as having a major impact is intensity by dean Koontz. and you talk about the the an unbelievable machine of plot that novel it was almost as if he sat down and even the title intensity is a is a funny title for that book because intensity is only what the reader feels it's it's sort of an eliciting an emotion you know and a lot of times you title a novel it's something that happens in the book but it's almost like Kuhn said i'm going to name this something that i want to create this emotion that this book creates i just had when i read it i was 17 16 17 it just blew me away how fast it is and how he strips out almost all pretenses of backstory and he just drops you into this narrative of this girl. I actually have a story about Dean Koontz. I have never never met him, but the man who took my author photograph was named Jerry Bauer. And he, Bauer apparently, and I didn't know this when he was taking my picture, but apparently he became really popular for just author photographs. And you can probably go to a used bookstore and find a book in the 60s, 70s. Oh, uh, a big, see not, the guy taking all the pictures. He took all the, <laughs> he took all the yeah. author, author photos. And so when I got mine, they wanted me to fly to New York City to do my author photo. And um, so they said, you know, you're going to come up and you're going to meet Jerry and he's going to take you around the city and he's going to find places to take these the pictures. And so I go over to his apartment and I'm in his apartment and it's raining that morning. And so he's a very nice man. Uh, and he said, um, we'll just sit here and wait on the rain to pass and we'll just talk because it's better if we know each other, you know, you get to know each other. It's easier to take pictures like that. And so we sat for about an hour, hour and a half and he just talked. And so he was talking about books, his history and his career in books. And I asked him who the nicest author he ever met was, you know, cause he knew it was clear he knew hundreds. And he said immediately, he said, Dean Koontz. He said, I will fly out to California sometimes just to visit with him, not to even take pictures. I just go, I think his wife was named wow. Greta. That's a big reputation. And so apparently he's a very nice man. But intensity just had a, you know, I still, you know, it's been more than 20 years since I read that book. And I still think about what he did with that. You know, you, you mentioned the experience of flying up to New York, taking an author photo. I'm sure you've had several other experiences related to your, your publication history. So can you tell us a little bit about, like, um, you know, some of the doors that have been opened as a result? of your your writing well you know obedience has an interesting history with movies and tv um it has been optioned multiple times i can't even remember how many times it's been optioned at this point it has been an offer came in from overseas i believe it was i believe it was portugal a portuguese movie company a reputable company because we i went to their website and look you know if you have website clearly you have a reputation <laughs> oh, yeah. so uh, you know they had thumbnails of these movies that they had made and they wanted to buy it and make it like that was their email to me we were we are going to make this movie. so they were already convinced yes yeah but the money was small and the, my agent in hollywood i have an agent in hollywood i have an agent in new york and you know because my new york agent doesn't do movies and so the hollywood guy said no we shouldn't do this because they're you know I, we can do much better going forward but looking back you know that movie would be out now so I yeah, think that would be crazy. Wow. But there have been so many things happen with movies and TV 
uh, and it's still ongoing now. I just got an email a week ago uh, about from a from the producer who has the rights now, and she has teamed up with a guy. I don't know if you know the show Fleabag on uh, it's, a, it's a hard R rated TV show on Am- Amazon that won all kinds of Emmys. Uh, but the producer from Fleabag is now in it, and they're trying to pitch it. They're going to actually put it with with actors and actresses and take the actors and actresses into the pitch meeting do this stuff and so hopefully something comes of that but you never know hollywood's a weird thing because i was told really early on by my uh, agent uh, laney becker uh and she said you got to be careful with hollywood because they'll say stuff and you don't know you know they don't know they don't know if it's going to go um so you got to be really careful so that's you know that's one part which you would never when i was beginning obedience i would never have thought that in a million years that that would be happening with that book but hopefully one day it'll be on and obviously now if there's ever a time to come up with something and have it on tv or you know is now because there's so many streaming services yeah. I mean, there's so many yeah. so many uh, shows out there so many uh, so much content another thing that w- that happened I, w- I was able to go to amsterdam my dutch the one thing that i didn't know when when uh, obedience came out uh, each time the book sells overseas, it's a new deal. So each each country or or pro, um, each territory where it sells, you'll get it's like a new everything is new and fresh. So it sold in you know I think Obedience sold in sixteen or seventeen foreign countries, and so each each country has its own. I mean they you know you have the different books, different covers. You know you're working with different people, different titles. Um, somebody told me the Chinese title of Obedience once, and it was like logic class goes mad or something like that is, you know, right. which is actually a great title yeah I love it um, of course in, in Chinese that's like two words <laughs> and so is that, the book has, has been big in Taiwan uh, for some reason in, in Taiwan and China I've sold way more copies than in the United States so I'm like one of those bands you know that's not that popular you know but I'm big in Germany or whatever I'm, I can say I'm big in Taiwan the Germans um, love Will <laughs> Um, but one of the publishers is is my Dutch publisher, and they brought me over to Amsterdam. My wife and I got to go for about a week. I think we were over there. It was at least five days, four or five days. They have a hotel there called the it's the Ambassador Hotel. That's just it's it's only a hotel for authors and mostly American authors. And we they put you in these you know it's really small. It's one of these classical European hotels. I was there actually with a writer named Alexander McCall Smith, who he's written, you know, he's very popular from mystery novels. And so he was there in the lobby and it was, you know, it's just a, it's a writer's hotel. So they'll bring in, what they did is they bring in reporters and they interviewed me in the hotel and they would just go up, you know, it's really strange. And I think, you know, it's, um, I don't know. And of course my wife loved it, obviously being in Amsterdam, (laughs) you know, the canals and all that, uh, uh, so that was definitely uh, a highlight in my life. That's a big business to have a hotel dedicated just to American authors. And that's a very specific process. market. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it shows you. I, I think what it does is it shows you how more serious they are about writing, probably than than we are. Absolutely. You know, I think they they take it a little bit more. I think they they tie it more into their history, you know, than we do. You know, Americans. I think publishing has become almost a commodity, like a. You know, it's it's very fast. I heard once, I, I heard this story just a few years ago, and I, I still believe this. Somebody at a conference I was at asked about books, like what is the future of book selling? And the guy said, uh, well, the future of book selling is this. There will be no bookstores. Basically, what will happen is you'll have vending machines, and you'll come up, and you'll punch in the title and the author, and you'll wait for however long, hmm. five minutes, and the book will come out. 
and you'll take it. And that'll be how we buy books in, wow. the, in the future. Red box for uh, books. Yeah, it's a red box. And <laughs> okay. so, but what, but so what's interesting though about that is there has been a move back, and I realize I'm off the question now, but I, the, the act of, the art of selling books is, is totally fascinating to me. We've moved back to where independent bookstores have had a resurgence. I, I, actually, think, I actually read that yesterday. I read an article. Uh, that that talked a lot about that. Yeah, yeah. the corner bookstores back. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I saw a commercial. Joseph Beth had a commercial. I, I noticed this weekend. I mean, that that's was wild. That's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. and they they're doing a huge renovation. <laughs> I was in Joseph Beth about uh, three weeks ago, and um, yeah, I think what happened is people got a look at eBooks and they started reading. You know, the downloading on Kindles, and they, and they thought, you know, it takes the the joy of reading away a little bit. It's much better to have the book and to browse for them to look for the book. There's something about book shopping that's pleasing to a lot of book lovers. And you're dealing with a niche mm-hmm. with book yeah. people. I mean, it's not a large, you know, it's not like football or something. You're, you know, these people who love books are a smallish portion of our uh, of our society. And so those people, you're not going to send somebody who doesn't read and say, I got you $100 Kindle gift card, Dad, or whatever. That person <laughs> right. is not going to. So the people who love to read, I think, got to look at what the Kindle could offer and said, eh, I don't much, I would much rather have the I physical. still like the book in my hand. Yeah, in your hand. Yeah. And I, I bet you mentioned Joseph Beth there. I bet uh, Black Friday shopping at a at a place like that, a bookstore. I bet the arguments that are had are much more articulate. I bet they are than like at a like a, at a retail store. It's like you know, yeah, yeah. I go, hey sir, that is my thirty five percent off. I'm <laughs> <laughs> unhand that classical novel. Yeah, some southern gentleman just turns around. Well, I do declare. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of different novels here, and we're all novel fans. We're all uh, fiction fans. And we, we've had some discussions before, Jason, Will, and I, and a lot of times we, we come back to Stephen King because we're all fans of Stephen King's work. Interestingly enough, we, we sort of made a rule on this uh, next segment here that we're not going to talk about <laughs> Stephen King stories. Otherwise, we would have a, a repeat of our uh, History of Stephen King episode, which is... Uh, In the month of very, October. was very funny. <laughs> So we're going to kind of transition here over to talking about some of the recent readings we've done, you know, maybe some more modern novels, and we've all brought one to discuss, and I believe we'll start with Jason. Jason, what novel did you bring? Sure. Uh, My favorite contemporary novel has to be the, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. It was published in 2003 and since then has sold over 80 million copies and, of course, was made into a movie starring uh, Tom Hanks. And who doesn't like Tom Hanks? I mean, you know, he's, he's Mr. Rogers now. He's been to the moon. You know, he was in Castaway. He can do it all, right? So, right. Uh, the Da Vinci Code is a thriller action novel, uh, but at its core, it's a novel about the Holy Grail. And uh, just me personally, I love stories that feature history and riddles and puzzles. Uh, and the Da Vinci Code, for sure, has these elements, plus a modern-day Indiana Jones-like character in uh, Professor Robert Langdon. So all of this together just blew me away and, and kept my attention to the very end. Although in good conscience, I, I must admit, I didn't agree with one of the major plot points uh, of the novel. But regardless, uh, The Da Vinci Code is great. That was That's probably my favorite in the quote-unquote recent years is The Da Vinci Code. That book was huge when it came out. I just remember you could go nowhere without meeting someone who had read the book, recommended the book, and just was just very excited about the release. I think I actually read that it, that it sold just over a million copies. This is this is going to sound crazy, but I think it's right. 
It sold over a million copies in three weeks. I think that was the stat that I saw. Dan Brown had done a few things before this, I think. I um, I used to work at a, a data entry company, and we were very fond of sitting around with our earbuds in and, and listening to oh, things yeah. while we would type away. And I remember reading or listening to several of his older books, and it's, it's interesting to see a lot of those common plot threads running through. And I think it's similar to what Will was talking about. It's very much, um, while there is character development, the the plot is what you really come to yeah. the Dan Brown book for. There's typically some kind of twist or there's some kind of element that just keeps you guessing. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. Um, but I think that was really my first introduction to the adult version of the mystery. I really hadn't read very many of those previously. Um, you know, Of course, growing up, I was a big fan of the Hardy Boys and uh, the Boxcar Children and some of those books that were uh, you know, mystery involved. But I think Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code really brought me to the the modern thriller slash mystery sort of story. So it was yeah. very interesting. And one of the things I like about Dan Brown, and not just uh, in this particular novel, but in others, it seems like that, that the ending or the resolution or the potential resolution of, of those novels uh, have like a profound impact on society. It's not just that this is going to affect five people or, you know, the, the bad guy gets away. There's a big payoff at the end. It's, it's like, a, you know, like this is going to affect all of humanity in some way, either like religiously or in some of his novels, it's like scientifically or whatever it may be that it has this, this massive implication for mankind. And I don't know. I just like that. I just, that's kind of my thing. I just, I just enjoy those. Yeah, absolutely. So, Will, what have you been reading lately, and what's a what's a good modern novel to discuss? Well, the book that I that I thought of is um, one that I don't know if a lot of people have read. It's by a Canadian author named Ian Reed, and it's called "I'm Thinking of Ending Things." It actually was just bought recently, fairly recently bought by a guy named Char- Charlie Kaufman, who made uh, Being John Malkovich and adaptation. So, the movie, hopefully, that movie is made. It is a, what Jason says about big stories is really interesting to me because I, I like those as well. But oddly, I have a, I'm drawn to much smaller puzzle box type stories where the implications are really tight inside a certain set of characters. And I don't know why. I think it goes back to my love of little, of almost like psychological games inside fiction, like an Agatha Christie type thing. But anyway, I'm thinking of ending things as a novel like that, where there are just a very few amount of characters and there are no implications that are wide ranging. It's very psychological. It's very strange. And it's one of the most frightening novels I've ever read. It's also, it's unclassifiable. It's a novel that you could read and somebody would ask you, what genre are you even reading there? And you wouldn't be able to tell them exactly what it is. It's kind of a thriller. It's kind of a horror novel. But it's it's mostly a psychological study. It has, I'm thinking of any things has the greatest twist I've ever read in fiction in it. Um, usually, I'm not a good, I'm not a type of reader who can see twists coming. And actually, I don't even like to see the twist coming. So I intentionally try to read lazy so that I don't get to, I don't try to outsmart the writer. Um, and because I like the, the one of the most pleasing things, maybe the most pleasing thing to me is when that twist comes and it upends you. Yeah. You know, you, you set up straight in bed or whatever. And so that's why I read. I love moments like that. It's one reason I love the mystery genre thrillers. And I, I'm thinking of ending things has an incredible moment in it that you do not see coming. And it, t- it turn, it's not only a twist, but it's a twist that turns the entire direction of the book. And it, 
makes you wonder if Ian Reid isn't crazy. If the author, <laughs> there isn't something mentally wrong with, like, what is going on here? Everything is upside down all of a sudden. And I had to finish it. The ending, I think, is tremendous. It is a, um, I think it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a very short novel. I think it may not even be 200 pages long. So to even call it a novel is to stretch. Um, it is a, it's, it's a, it's a work of art. I don't know how he thought of it. Um, it, but it's also, it's one of those books where you read it and you kind of, as a writer, as, or as a novelist, you get a little bit disappointed because you think I'll never come up with anything like that. That, that's so brilliant how he, how he did that and, and everything kind of works perfectly in it. It's, it's a, I think to, to finish on, it's, it's one of the strangest novels that I have ever read and I love strange stuff. Yeah, the, the best part of those novels is when you get the payoff and then see all the threads that were leading up to it that you might have missed. I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. I like to try, to try to tie those threads together and figure out the, the big payoff. And, you know, for me, the you know seeing that payoff happen and wondering about whether I was right or not is the big draw for those uh, mystery novels. But I, I, I certainly, like you said, I like to kind of sit bold upright and be, you know, knocked off my feet when that happens. And it's always so exciting to see the intentionality behind a lot of that. And I've, I've had similar feelings. I've read books before and, uh, you know, thought, wow, that has just uh, defeated me because I can't do that, <laughs> you know. Um, but you will after you have done that. And you've written a, a, a several books in that manner. And uh, that's awesome. So Thank very you. cool. Very cool. Uh, the book that I've brought is uh, not in the mystery or thriller category. It's a little bit more small, uh, hometown grown sort of. Uh, it's called The Art of Racing in the Rain. It's a 2008 novel written by American author Garth Stein. And I think there's a movie coming out or has already come out uh, around the same name. But I read this book when it was released. And when I picked it up off the shelf, uh, it was on one of those, uh, you know, recommended by the staff sort of things at a small town bookstore. And I just remember there was uh, just a picture on the front of uh, this golden retriever-like dog just kind of sitting there and staring back at me. And I, I really don't know why I picked it up. It just seemed like something so much different than what I saw, you know, surrounding it on the shelf. But the novel was a New York Times bestseller for 156 weeks. Um, and it's told from the point of view of Enzo, who is an elderly dog who believes that he lives, that if he lives a noble life, he'll be reincarnated as a man when he dies. And this is kind of the setup for the entire novel. Just this dog, you know, following his life, following the family with which he lives and seeing how he interprets their actions as human, whether good or bad, and how he tries to mirror those actions in his own life. So there are several characters that play into this. One is Denny. Uh, that's the dog's owner. He is sort of our co-main character. He's a professional race car driver who picked Enzo out of a litter of puppies about a year before he met his wife, Eve. And Eve becomes a major plot point in the story as well because toward the, the middle of the book, she actually passes away from a brain tumor. And this becomes the catalyst for a lot of the interaction that's had between uh, Denny uh, as well as Enzo, the dog. And then finally, our, our last main character is the little girl, Zoe. This is the daughter of Denny and Eve. She is eight years old at the end of the novel. She's generally bright, happy, loving. And you kind of see this juxtaposition between the little girl. You know, you see uh, someone who is very happy about life, someone who is 
very pleased with her position in life. You know, she's very honoring to, to people and to nature. And then you see the mother who is somewhat opposite. So, and, you know, Denny or rather Enzo, the dog gets to observe these characters and their interactions. And when the mother passes away, there's this big custody battle that ensues. And again, you have to think the entire story somehow brilliantly is told through the point of view of a dog. And, uh, you know, it's just such a such an interesting take because I think more so than Enzo just being a dog, we really get to see an out, outside perspective on humanity. And I think that's a little bit rare in fiction. Uh, we accomplish that sometimes with a third-person perspective. But to see this outside perspective through a first-person lens is just something I really hadn't seen a whole lot in literature. And it's something that just really struck me. And I have just a couple quotes here. Uh, Enzo, the dog, when he's describing Eve, keeping in mind that he's analyzing her to figure out how he can be good and noble and kind and, and return to life as a man when he dies. That's his end result. So he says, I had always wanted to love Eve as Denny loved her, but I never had because I was afraid. She was my reign. She was my unpredictable element. She was my fear. But a racer should not be afraid of rain. A racer should embrace the rain. And in the, throughout this entire story, the rain is a symbol for life's challenges and struggles. You know, you can't be for sure when it will start or end, meaning the rain itself. But we can learn and adapt to how to deal with the rain when it's falling. And that seems to be the entire point of the story. One more quote I'll share is Enzo describing Denny and Zoe, the, the father and the daughter. Uh, I marveled at them both, how difficult it must be to be a person, to constantly subvert your desires, to worry about doing the right thing rather than doing what is most expedient. And I think that's a constant struggle we all face. You know, how do you do the right thing when the quick thing is easier to do? And just seeing, again, that first-person perspective of the dog, having to witness that and deal with that internally and have to reconcile that and figure out which way is the best way. You know, is it better to act with precision and quickness or is it better to be more slow, deliberate, and thoughtful? And, you know, I, I take away from this, you know, in terms of fiction writing that we learn the human condition is sometimes our greatest weakness and our greatest asset, because this is a story all about what it means to be human and how much more difficult and challenging it is, uh, you know, to, to live where we have to make these moral decisions constantly. Uh, fiction is about translating the human experience into something so real that even a dog can understand what it means to love, live, and die for something greater than ourselves. It's a really big story and a really tight package. You know, that's that's what I really enjoyed about it. And, um, uh, you know, one thing that we were doing whenever we were preparing this episode, I talked to Jason. I said, you know, Jason, make sure you send me your, your book titles uh, so that I can right. kind of know what yours is about. And it's funny because I'm looking across the desk and I see Jason's note uh, for The Art of Racing in the Rain, and it just says one word, dog. dog. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, Enzo seems to be a very reflective dog. You know, and <laughs> yeah. I have a dog named Cody. And uh, Cody. You ever call him contemplating life and sitting around? I think he's contemplating my life. I, I think uh, Cody asks questions in his own head, like if, if he were to fall asleep for an extended period of time. <laughs> right. You know, should I eat his face off? <laughs> I'm not sure. That's the, my the dog. Real but questions are being asked at your house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, Shannon, I know that we've talked uh, some about modern novels, uh, but let's uh, shift gears and talk about some classics. 
Sure. So what's your favorite favorite classic novel? Well, I'm using the word classic here a little loosely. Go right, go right <laughs> ahead. Uh, this is a book that was released in 1966, so it's a little bit older. I don't know if I'd call it classic, uh, but it's called Flowers for Algernon. It's one that when I was an eighth grade English teacher, we taught in short story format, uh, which is kind of the cool thing about this story. It started as a short story, and that doesn't happen a whole lot. You, you'll hear sometimes authors talk about, well, I started writing a short story, and that became my first chapter. But the interesting thing about this story is that the entire short story was written, it was published, it was award-winning, and then it was developed into a novel, which also went on to win awards. So not just the first chapter, but That's the cool. entire story exists in both formats. So I found that really interesting. It's a story that stuck with me throughout the years. It was originally published as a short story in 1959, and it won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story just a year later. As a novel, the story was a joint winner of the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1966. And it's similar to Dracula. You know how Dracula is sort of told in this piecemeal reporting type of style? Uh, I'm really drawn to these stories that have interesting points of view. This is another one of those that has a very interesting point of view. It's told in a series of progress reports written by the main character, whose name is Charlie Gordon. He is the first human who undergoes surgery to increase his intelligence. So he is a man uh, who is mentally challenged, and you get to see the, the writing style of his progress reports because the author here had to be very in tune with the character because there's a lot of misspellings, there's a lot of uh, intentional typos, run-on sentences, all those things that we would consider, you know, quote, good writing are absent from the first part of the book. But the, the premise there is that Charlie Gordon undergoes this surgery, an experimental surgery, and as a result of that, he progressively becomes more and more intelligent. And again, just as Enzo got to see human development through the eyes of a, you know, a, 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 an animal character, we get to see a similar progression here. We get to see someone who was, I think in the novel, he said he described himself as sort of looking at life through a keyhole. You know, if you yeah, can just I remember imagine. that part, yeah. Yeah, that's something that's always stuck with me, kind of stooping down, uh, looking through a door frame, you know, and just seeing a little bit of light on the other side and just a little bit of how people live, but not getting the full scope of what's really going on and how life really exists for other people. And when he has the surgery, he gets to open this door. And not only that, he walks through and begins to interact with the world in a brand new way. There are several other characters that he comes in contact with. Most notably is a character named Alice Kinian. She is both in the short story and in the novel, but she plays a much larger role in the novel. She's a young, beautiful woman who works as a teacher for mentally challenged adults. She eventually becomes a love interest for Charlie when he undergoes the surgery and becomes intelligent. So there's an interesting dynamic here. We get to see her in the role as teacher, and then when Charlie develops into a little bit more of an intellectual, in fact, I think his IQ gets up near 200 by the time the the surgery takes its full effect, and it kind of happens progressively over time. You know, they, they fall in love and have a genuine, deep love. You know, this is, again, the idea of flinging open the door, realizing that life is just on the other side and getting to see the full perspective of everything. But unfortunately, it's not to last because uh, there was also another patient that went through the surgery, and this was a small mouse named Algernon. And this is where the title of the story comes from, Flowers for Algernon. Charlie begins to see that Algernon's intelligence starts to decline 
which is foreshadowing that his own intelligence will eventually decline. And without giving away further plot points from the book, because that's only about half the story, we get to see this dynamic shift um, of the character going from being uh, not very intelligent, a very humble person, to being intelligent and then sort of going down the other side of that slope. I have just a couple quotes that I'll share here. Charlie, when he's describing himself, says, Dr. Strauss said I had something that was very good. He said I had a good motivation. I never even knowed I had that. I felt good when he said not everybody with an IQ of 68 had that thing like I had it. I don't know what it is or where I got it, but he said Algernon had it too. I think this is very telling of the world in which Charlie lives and knowing that he is a good person even if he doesn't understand that intellectually. So it's, a, it's an interesting way of looking at the human condition. One other quote that I think is very telling here, Charlie is describing his friends because he works at a bakery. And at the bakery, he says, we had a lot of fun at the bakery today. Joe Carp said, hey, look, where Charlie had his operation. What did they do, Charlie? Put some brains in? I was going to tell him about me getting smart, but I remember Professor Niemer said no. Then Frank Riley said, what did you do, Charlie? Open a door the hard way? That made me laugh. They're my friends, and they really like me. And all throughout, you have this sense of dramatic irony, where the reader understands something that Charlie doesn't yet understand. And then that, and the fact is, the world's very cruel, at least in this narrative. And we find that people are intentionally making fun of Charlie. There's a scene where he trips over a broom handle uh, because they just keep putting it out in front of him, and he thinks it's funny because they all start laughing. So he gets up, and they do it again, and they repeat it over and over. And that's the way he finds friendship. But there's a moment, a pivotal moment in the story when his intelligence reaches a certain capacity, and he realizes all the intentionality is not them trying to befriend him, but rather sort of very be, belittle him. Yeah, yeah, belittle him, make him make him feel very small. So the takeaway here in terms of fiction writing, point of view is one of the most difficult elements of fiction to ex- execute correctly. Uh, Charlie Gordon's story is told from the point of view of quote dumb Charlie, and then evolves into smart Ch- Charlie. A writer must understand his or her characters and let them breathe their own air and walk in their own shoes. Believable characters are those who live their lives with no sense that the writer's pulling all the strings. And I find that fascinating. I've heard a lot of authors talk about that, you know, letting their characters live their lives. And there's an interesting dynamic in writing. You have planners and pantsers. (laughs) I've read a few (laughs) articles about this where, you know, some writers are pre-planned. They have everything structured down to the smallest detail of their character's life. And then you have others. Psychopaths. (laughs) Psychopaths. Yeah. You know, anytime I've ever written, I I fall more on the side of the pantser, I think. I just feel like I have to write. I have to kind of let the story evolve, let it breathe a little bit. I have a hard time seeing through to the end. And I don't know what, you know, just a a quick follow-up question here. Will, what's your feeling on that? So, Planner versus Panzer. Oh, you don't know how how this question has, <laughs> has vexed me over the years. Uh, I'm definitely a Panzer, and it's and my the people I know in New York hate it, hate it, and it because it can. It, the problem with it is it can lead you into just 
it, it corners. Basically, you can write yourself into a corner. And but when it goes well, see, I, I can never, I can't outline. I can't outline. It takes the joy of writing out for me. Uh, I have a friend at work who's a writer, and we get into this conversation sometimes. And he'll tell me I have to outline. It just, I, I, it doesn't work if I don't. And when he says that, I nod, you know, politely. But inside, I'm thinking <laughs> there is no way I could ever do that because <laughs> you monster. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Because to me, it takes the the joy of writing is to come to those moments that you don't expect. The, but the, the the problem is you if you don't expect it, it might not be the right thing. It, it could be a mistake, and you don't even realize it's a mistake until much later on. So right. you get into the jungle of the novel, and you're sort of in this in this murk, and you've realized you made an error. It was great well, it, when it happened. It was a surprise, a shock, a twist, but it, it got you into trouble. But I can't, I can't write outlines. They, they don't interest <laughs> me at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, it's one of the reasons I've sort of stopped writing fiction uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because I just have no interest in writing outlines. And my people in New York are like, you can't write novels if you don't write outlines because we have to see something up front. And I'm like, well, I'd rather not write. I would honestly rather not write if I had to write outlines. They are completely foreign to me and do not get them at all. Uh, I, I well, I get them in a theoretical way, but they just do not. I, in a practical don't, way, yeah, practical, right. they don't interest me at all. I have to have those shocking moments when I write. So, Will, uh, tell us a little bit about maybe the the classic novel that you're going to uh, talk about. Well, I saw Shannon's Flowers for Algernon in the 1960s, published in the 1960s, and I raised him because The Secret History is published in the 1980s. <laughs> and so you really have to stretch to call it a, uh, cl- a classic. Old classics. <laughs> <laughs> Written in the King's in the Queen's English. Right? Um, but it is it is a cl- it's a not only a classic in terms of uh, its its style, but it's also a classical novel in that it's about classicists. It's it's a, a book literally about the Greek classics. So the setup of this book is the the the, not, the author is named Donna Tart, and she became uh, even more well known. This book is it, any any reader, like real like literary reader, will talk about the secret history and and talk about the impact that it had on them. That I've found, so many people have come up to me over the years. Oh, you've got you've read the secret history, and of course I've read the secret history. It's a it's a dense novel. It's written. Shannon was talking about perspective. It's written from uh, a, a main character's point of view. His name's Richard Papin, and he is a incoming transfer student. Which I think that's maybe one reason it had an impact on me because I also transferred, and so I can see kind of some of his. The first hundred pages of this book are about Richard's inability to to sort of blend in at this small college where he ends up in Vermont. But the most interesting thing about The Secret History is not necessarily that. It's that it's a this is a mystery, a, a kind of mystery novel, but it tells you who dies on page one in the first line. And then the next 800 pages are an unraveling of what happened. And um, kind of going back to my other other pick, I'm thinking of anything. This is also a small puzzle box of a novel in terms of its number of characters. We're dealing with five main characters, the four core characters who were at the college before Richard, and then Richard when he comes in, and he is extremely observational to the point where everything is observed. A lot of people have a love-hate relationship with Secret History because it is so dense. It is a very thick, big novel. It A lot of pages pass where nothing happens, so you have to sort of be reading for the the writing. And it's an unusual novel because it's it's kind of works like a thriller, but it has this scope 
that's very large. Um, but it takes place over the span of, of three years where Richard is in school and the murder occurring and how the murder happened and who did it and who is to blame. It's a lot of, a lot of religious themes in it. Um, but basically the students become uh, under the sway of this brilliant professor at this Vermont college and they be- begin to believe that they can go through a, an old Greek process, basically the Bacchanalia, where they believe, truly believe they can create these potions and they can chant to the Greek gods and become and lose their minds, essentially. And the question of whether they really do that or whether they're just nuts <laughs> is, uh, is, is always there in the, in the subtext of the novel. But it, it gets to, you know, the great campus novels. Anytime you Google campus novels, of course, both my books are campus novels, you, Secret History will come up as the great campus novel. And what makes it great is her attention to every detail. Her style is very controlled for somebody in her 20s. Donna Tartt would go on to write a book called The Goldfinch, which which won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. And, you know, and so um, she just has this knack, almost a, a Virginia Woolf-style knack for describing the human condition you talked about with the art of racing in the rain. But a page turner to this is not, okay? What you would get into with the secret history, if you think, I want a real quick read, that's, that's not this. <laughs> uh, but it, but the style of it, her writing, how she plums people's psychology uh, is, I think, is unreal, especially for a writer that young. It's the book I go t- back to more often than any other book. And, and when I'm looking for style, when I'm like, I've got to read something that's just really good writing. I return to the secret history. Um, it's a it's a masterpiece of style. It's just a great a great great novel. Well, my favorite classic uh, has to be the Time Machine by H. G. Wells. Ever heard of that one, guys? Yeah, that one's been around for a little that while. Maybe you chose a real classic. Have you seen, have you seen the movie? <laughs> We're going to. I, I have the uh, the what are they, the Morlock the the, the, the Morlocks Morlock. Yeah. Oh, and that's exactly right. So the Morlocks were frightening. Oh my gosh, and that, that may be part of the reason why the, it sort of connects you know connects with me. But yeah, it was written by H. G. Wells in 1895, and basically it just tells the tale of a of a British scientist, or uh, just referred to as the, the Traveler or the Time Traveler. You know, throughout the novel. And basically, he has a dinner party, and he's just bragging. And I think that's that's one of the parts that's so interesting is like he just uh, very early on in the novel is like, "Hey, hope you're enjoying your bread. I have a time machine in the back, <laughs> you know." And he just introduces it real quickly, and uh, so he plays around with that. Obviously, he gets in it. He fast forwards almost a million years into the future, and when he arrives there, he sees uh, that that uh, basically humanity has really evolved into two different species. And so you have like these really uh, gentle, sort of simple uh, Eloi that live on on top of the ground. They just sort of uh, live the life of luxury for the most part. And then you have these horrifying, glowing-eyed creatures that work underground, and, and they're called the Morlocks. And so obviously there's some some political, uh, you know, societal themes probably working, you know, uh, working there. But to me, it was just a really good novel because it got my attention like quickly. And I thought, is that possible? I mean, like, you know, when, when, we're, when we're looking at, at our own today's, you know, culture and society and how things are going, uh, is, is mankind really gravitating toward that ultimate end where we're separating ourselves out and our lives are so different yeah. that ultimately we could really truly become you know, different. Uh, I noticed my eyes were glowing this morning. I had a, a feeling that I wanted to crawl underground, so I don't know. Maybe. 
always, you know, that that novel has always just sort of stuck in my head. And of course, I think in 1960, we've actually mentioned this uh, maybe in our history of movies or history of science fiction, something that we uh, previous episode. I know that I had talked about uh, the time machine uh, when it came out in 1960. I read this in eighth grade, and I think that's maybe uh, one of the reasons why that it stuck with me. Obviously, I was an adult when I read The Da Vinci Code, but with this one I read in eighth grade, uh, along with uh, The Diary of Anne Frank, which I read in a tree stand uh, when I was in sixth grade. My dad wanted <laughs> to take me hunting, so uh, I wasn't really interested in hunting, but but I had to get that book read for right. class, so that was a good opportunity to read that. But anyhow, you know, the more I think about The Time Machine, uh, I like the simplicity of it. It's just that we're all, you know, we're here together. We're in the same spot, same location, just about a million years in the future. And then how do I get back? Yeah. Uh, I really like the, the simple, you know, plot to that. Uh, but there are some elements that really do make you think. Uh, for instance, you know, all the Walmart stuff that happens at Black Friday. It really does make you think, oddly enough, you know, has society really has split because, you know, you have some people like, I'll give you the shirt off my back. Other people, you know, I will uh, beat down two elderly women for a $10 toaster. Yeah, I <laughs> want know? the shirt off your back. I want the shirt off your back, yeah. <laughs> it does make you kind of think maybe where, where humanity's going, you know, ultimately years from now. But I just didn't really enjoyed that novel. Uh, I thought it was really cool. I also like sort of the historical, you know, part that it plays uh, in time travel. I mean, how many books and, and countless movies have we talked about where uh, time travel is involved? And I think that the time machine... Uh, while it's not the first uh, story slash novel to feature time travel, I think it is the first novel to feature a time machine, so mm-hmm. to speak. Like there's some device that's been made to do that, as opposed to just something that just sort of magically occurs. Uh, so if if for nothing else, I like the historical significance of it. Yeah, absolutely. Jason, do you have anything else to add concerning the classic or modern novels and the art of fiction writing? Final thoughts? I don't think so. I think that's I think that's a wrap for me. All right, Will. Anything else you want to add? Well, I, I will add one more thing. We mentioned Tom Hanks, and we would be remiss <laughs> if we did not mention his famous, most famous creation, David S. Pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> we can't let that well, go. He's no, most we can't let that go. He yeah. is his own thing. <laughs> his own thing. <laughs> You can Google uh, David S. Pumpkins if you, if the uh, listeners are not familiar with that. Uh, oh, yeah. Feel free to do that. It's a classic. you got to <laughs> check it out. His most notable work, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I just want to thank uh, Will Lavender for being on the show, uh, New York Times bestselling author of Obedience and Dominance. You can catch Will Lavender on his web- website, willlavender.com, or on Twitter uh, with the handle at Will Lavender. So, Will, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. Uh, we also want to thank our listeners of the podcast. We recently hit 2,000 downloads. How about that? Yeah, that's 2K. exciting. 2K. That's pretty cool. Uh, so, thank you all for listening to the show. Thank you for uh, connecting with us on social media. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at slapdashpod. So, thank you all so much for listening, and take care. Take care, everyone. <laughs>